Imagine you and a couple of friends start a new literary movement, and each one of you writes a groundbreaking novel. A few years later, something you took so seriously becomes the fashion of the day. You watch as many strive to conform to the nonconformist attitudes you began. Today I have part two of the Beat Movement and the Beatniks on the 170th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Thanks for joining me today. So what's the weather like where you're at? For us in Chicagoland, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, very unpredictable. On the day of my last podcast, two weeks ago, we had a lot of snow, and it lasted through Monday. It took me two days to shovel us out. By Wednesday, the temperature had dropped to like negative 30 Fahrenheit. And it was a lot worse than that with the wind chill factor. By the weekend, it was up to almost 50, which was like an 80 degree change. Then earlier this week, we had a lot of rain, both freezing and normal. And now we're back down to single digit temperatures again. What a ride. You know, I'm not one of those people that bitch and moan about winter like a lot of others that I know, but the deep freeze is starting to get to me a little. The dogs don't like the fact that we're not going for their regular walks, and my car doesn't seem happy when I drive it. Anyway, how are things with you? So this is part two of what I started last week. And before we get going, I want to mention that In the story, I talk of an old TV show, Petticoat Junction. Thanks, Russell, for letting me know about that. And also, a lot of my story about the Beatniks comes from a couple of C-SPAN videos by history professor William Rodebra. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And I will have links to these videos in my show notes for this episode. They're very short, but worth watching. So now I'm going to take a sip of my steaming hot coffee. Mm. and start part two of the story that I began last week of the Beats and the Beatniks. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. And here, with his bird's eye view and a brain to match, is Mr. Know-it-all. Our subject for today is how to be a beatnik. Some people think the beatnik is merely a bum with sunglasses, but he is more than that, though not much. The first step in becoming a beatnik is to grow a beard. This can be a long process, particularly if you're a girl. Clothing-wise, we should remember this important rule. The well-dressed beatnik is seldom neatnik. Beatniks hang out in unemployment lines, health food stores, but most of all, in coffee houses. Beatnik joints have lots of atmosphere, but it's usually too dark to see it. The Beatnik is often fond of reading poetry to jazz. Thusly, Mary had a swinging lamb. He followed her to 
school, she hocked his wool for a bongo drum, and man, that lamb was cool. So when we last left, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg were both successful authors living in San Francisco, California. William S. Burroughs was also successful living in Paris. By the late 1950s, all three were now celebrities. Many more followed, people like Neil Cassidy, Gregory Corso, Michael McClure, Gary Schneider, Joanne Kiger, John Clayton Holmes, Deanna DePrima, Bob Kaufman, and more. It was the bohemian lifestyle they lived, or at least how it was portrayed in the media, things like not being tasked with any real form of employment, creating and sharing art, the freedom from the expectations of society, that appealed to young men and women all over the country. A new generation followed. Now, I'm sure in those who came next, there were some talented individuals, but there was also a large amount who were more interested in the Beats way of life. They took on the look and the attitude of the Beats, dressing in secondhand clothes, mostly black, were voluntarily homeless and jobless, and took on the attitude that the whole world was awful. The press picked up on this new fad, one that on the surface seemed to be filled with pseudo-intellectual shallow wannabe artists who indulged in drug use and open sex. To the straights, they were a form of amusement, cartoonish people to be laughed at. They were known as the beatniks. The beatniks, nutniks, they all act like they was behind the door when the brains was handed out. This new breed had many of the same loves as the beats, jazz music, live poetry readings, and odd books that were only found in beat bookstores, like radically political ones or self-published books of poetry, usually in paperback, which was something new at the time. These beatniks were originally concentrated in New York's Greenwich Village or San Francisco's North Beach. They became a tourist attraction for the Straits. By the late 1950s, it became popular for people on the weekends to dress up as a beatnik and head out to one of these two locations for a night. There were stores where you could buy beatnik outfits, complete with black pants, vertically striped shirts, dark sunglasses, and berets. Of course, it was easy to identify these weekend beatniks, especially the men, because real beatniks had long hair and beards, unlike the straights who had jobs, jobs that didn't tolerate that look. And of course, real beatniks had a smell to them because they rarely bathed or wore deodorant. The Village Voice was the counterculture newspaper of New York, and inside one could find an ad to rent a beatnik. If you were one of the wealthy in New York, you could add fun and excitement to your fancy upscale party on Fifth Avenue by renting a long-haired, bearded beatnik for the night. A great form of amusement for the wealthy. Hey, look, uh, you know, like, if you bought this record to learn how to speak hip from a record man, that is the squarest thing I ever heard of. I mean, wow. Look, so like you bought it, you must need it. So that was a smart move, you know what I mean, or something? This is a new departure in language instruction for English-speaking people who want to talk to and be understood by jazz musicians, hipsters, beatniks, juvenile delinquents, and the criminal friend. What time is it? i got to make a phone call. Shh, shh, shh. The twilight world of the American hipster is an important American subculture with a language all its own. In her memoir, Minor Characters, Joyce Johnson described how the stereotype was absorbed into the American culture. Beat Generation sold books, black turtleneck sweaters and bongos, berets and dark sunglasses. Sold a way of life that seemed to be dangerous fun, thus to be either condemned or imitated. Suburban couples could have beatnik parties on Saturday nights and drink too much and fondle each other's wives. The original Beats found the whole beatnik thing quite embarrassing. 
Now, it was easy for the press to make fun of the beatniks. The name itself was created as a joke on the more superficial aspects of the beat generation. There were kids who were shallow, lazy wannabes who were avoiding real jobs, not wanting to contribute to society. The term beatnik is credited to Herb Cain, a long-standing and popular San Francisco newspaper columnist. In his column, Cain wrote, Look Magazine, preparing a picture spread on San Francisco's beat generation, oh no, not again, hosted a party at a North Beach house for 50 beatniks. And by the time word got around the sour grapevine, over 250 bearded cats and kits were on hand, slopping up Mike Cowell's free booze. They're only beats, you know, when it comes to work. Later, Kane explained how he came up with the name Beatnik. I coined the word Beatnik simply because Russia's Sputnik was aloft at the time and the word popped out. Why the coinage earned worldwide currency is a minor and not very interesting story. Later, in 1961, he publicly confessed, I've never been particularly proud of that word. Speaking of the Life magazine story from 1959, it really pissed off the real Beats. The article was called, The Only Rebellion Around, but the shabby beats bungle the job in arguing, sulking, and bad poetry. It featured a picture of what it called the real beat household, which each item in the household numbered. Things like beat chick dressed in black, coal stove for heating baby's milk, drying chick's leotards, and displaying crucifix-shaped Mexican cowbells, naked light bulb, hot plate for warming espresso coffee pot and bean cans, marijuana for smoking, Posters for poetry readings and jazz concerts. Paperback library of beat classics. Crates that served as tables and closets. Hi-fi loudspeakers. Typewriter with half-finished poem. Bearded beat wearing sandals, chinos, and turtleneck sweater. And studying a record by the late saxophonist Charlie Parker. Italian wine bottles. Empty beer cans. Ill-tended plants. Guitar. Record player. Beat poetry leaflet, bare mattress, bongo drums to accompany poetry readings, cat, and baby beat who has gone to sleep on the floor after playing with beer cans. And the baby, of course, is shown passed out, belly down on the floor with arms and legs spread out, uncared for by the beatniks. Obviously, the Life magazine article was created to poke fun at the beats or to scare straight Americans. Now, it's easy for us to criticize these young men and women for their lifestyle, but that's not fair, is it? I'm sure not all of them were cultural stereotypes. Sure, there were many that followed the beats as a fad, the same way people followed the hippie movement of the 60s or the punk movement of the 70s. But there were also real artists, deep thinkers, who were trying to do something significant and were caught up in the beatnik craze. It didn't help that the media quickly found it as a form of amusement. It seemed like every TV show of the 60s had an episode with a jab at the beatnik culture. In comedies, they were laughed at. In crime dramas, they were to be feared as thugs or spaced-out drug addicts. In an episode of Petticoat Junction, Dennis Hopper played a beatnik poet who sells out at the end of the show. The first portrayal of the beatnik might have been in the 1949 film D.O.A., in which the main character goes to a jazz club, and we hear things such as, Cool, cool, really cool. Man, I'm really hip. You're from nowhere, nowhere. The whole atmosphere of the club seems to be based on the beat movement. And of course, there was Funny Face, in which Audrey Hepburn does that amazing and famous dance. 
It was probably in Roger Corman's film Bucket of Blood that the beatniks were first used as a source of laughs. Dick Miller, as Walter Paisley, gets famous in a beat club for killing people and pets and covering them with plaster as a form of art. And of course, starting in 1959, the future Gilligan's Island star Bob Denver played Maynard G. Krebs, a lazy nonconformist beatnik in the TV show The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. In 1959, The Danny Thomas Show had an episode called Terry Goes Bohemian in which Danny Thomas goes to a beat coffee house. I look at the graveyard of my civilization and I see nothing but orderly nothingness. And crying out from this nothingness is my poor sick generation. Looking somewhere for that big hipster who's the happy connection to that eternal jukebox of the night. And my grandfather heart cries out to those who look for the heavenly halls of eternal love and wind up in Orbach's basement buying hydrogen panties for a three-legged elephant. <laughs> and to those who took a steamship to the Zen shores of an oriental paradise, only to meet up with the eternal mother-in-law and wind up in Glendale and in Pittsburgh and all over the country crocheting doilies for a one-eyed poodle. <laughs> and to everyone else in my lost generation, standing naked in the graveyard of life, looking for that one mourner who comes from Albuquerque, which is the seat of Indian culture largely devoted to making warm Navajo blankets for cold American women. Two films came out about this time, The Beat Generation in 1959, in which a beat nicknamed Stan Hess turns out to be a woman-hating serial rapist and the Beatniks in 1960, in which the Beatniks are a gang of thieves. Poking fun at Beatniks still exists today, like an episode of The Simpsons where we learn that Ned Flanders' parents were Beatniks. Would you please tell your son to stop? We can't do it, man! Lack of discipline. I'm beginning to see the problem. We don't believe in rules like we gave them up when we started living like freaky beatniks. Now, you don't believe in rules, yet you want to control Ned's anger. Yeah, you've got to help us, Doc. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. In 1960, J. Edgar Hoover told the Republican National Convention that the three menaces to America were... Communists, beatniks, and eggheads. It's funny how the actions of the younger generation always seems to scare the older ones, am I right? Throughout the 60s, as new younger kids joined the beat movement, it began to evolve into something else. The black clothes of the beats became colorful with flower and tie-dye. They became more active in politics, something that in general the beats didn't concern themselves with. And the choice of the music went from jazz to the new form of folk and rock and roll. They would become the hippies of the mid and late 60s. And that change might have started with an incident that happened in 1961. For 17 years, it was popular on Sundays for musicians and their friends to gather in New York's Washington Square Park to sing folk songs and hang out. On April 9, 1961, the powers that be decided to put an end to it. Up till then, they'd always received a permit for the gathering, but for some unknown reason, the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation Commissioner Newbold Morris rejected the folks' application with no explanation. Izzy Young, who ran the Folklore Center in the heart of the Greenwich Village folk scene, and who was the one who applied for the permit, decided that they should gather anyway as a protest. It wasn't run by any political party, Young said. It was run by the idea that I, and others had, 
that people had the right to sing. So it was a peaceful demonstration asking for our rights. A sign was hung on a local bookstore that began, Protest Rally at the Fountain in Washington Square this Sunday at 2 p.m., and it went on to describe what they were protesting. On Sunday, they arrived, young men and women, boys and girls, many of them with guitars or carrying signs that read things like, Park Department, we are respectable. Keep the sound of music in the square. And we love folk music, let us keep it, Commissioner Morris. Seven or eight paddy wagons, as well as a few policemen on horses, greeted them. Filmmaker Don Drayson, who was there that day with his cameras, turned the footage that he shot into a short film called Sunday. In the film, which is available on YouTube, Young is seen talking to police. He told the authorities, We feel that, as citizens of America, we have the perfect right to sing. And it's not up to Commissioner Morris to tell people what kind of music is good or bad. He's telling people folk music brings out degenerates, but it's not so. They began to argue, the beatniks and folk singers, with the police. Finally, the protesters began to sit and sing. Police began to make arrests, taking people away as they continued singing. After some more arguing, the crowd begins to belt out the Star-Spangled Banner as more law enforcement arrives. Suddenly, the pushing and fighting starts. More arrests, confusion, screaming, all over the right to play music in the park. In all, 10 people were arrested, 20 injured, including three policemen. The New York Mirror initially reported it as the Beatnik Riot. The change had begun. Now, this was a time when rock and roll seemed to be on the way out. Buddy Holly had died, Elvis was in the army, and Chuck Berry was in jail. Then in 1964, four young men from Liverpool changed everything. At the same time, race became an issue as well as women's liberation. Within a few years, the beatniks were now the hippies, or I should say, the peace and love movement took many ideas that had begun with the beats and added issues which concerned them at the time. With a few exceptions, these were not the same people. The Beats came after the fear of World War II, living through the Depression, while the hippies were children of the 50s, the baby boomer generation, post-war consumerism. And there were the numbers. It began with just a few Beats, grew to hundreds or even thousands of beatniks, to hundreds of thousands of hippies. It is estimated that more than 400,000 people attended Woodstock in 1969. Beat poet Gary Schneider wrote, The hippies were living out the philosophy that the Beats proclaimed. Some of the Beats came along with the hippies. The most famous Beat was Allen Ginsberg, one of the founders of the Beat generation. He's considered the bridge between the Beats and the hippies, becoming friends with people like Timothy Leary, Ken Casey, Bob Dylan, and others. For Ginsburg, he would spend his whole life being politically active and studying Buddhism and Krishnaism. And he was always creating. The poet, philosopher, and writer was a heavy smoker for most of his life, and in the 70s, he suffered a couple of heart attacks. Yet he survived until he was 70 years old, dying on April 5, 1997 of congestive heart failure, with friends and family around. Through his whole life, he continued to be good friends with William S. Burroughs. William S. Burroughs, the man Norman Mailer declared the only American writer who may be conceivably possessed by genius, continued to create art, 
but had a lot of ups and downs, especially with drugs like heroin. Now, I can't talk about Burroughs without talking about the death of his second wife, Joan Vollmer. In 1951, they were living in Mexico, where they had fled to escape drug charges in the U.S., and they were having a bad time. He was without heroin, but was suffering from benzedrine abuse. One night there was a party, one in which was to celebrate Burroughs returning from a long trip with his boyfriend. At some point, Burroughs brought up the idea of moving to South America where he could hunt wild boar. Joan joked that if they had to rely on his hunting, they would starve to death. He proposed a test to show what a good shot he was. He pulled out a handgun from his travel bag and said, It's time for our William Tell Act. Joan put a glass of gin on her head, closing her eyes, saying, You know I can't stand the sight of blood. Burroughs took aim, pulled the trigger, and hit his wife in the forehead with the bullet. Now their two children didn't have a mother. Burroughs, though, lived a long life, dying four months after his friend Allen Ginsberg on August 2, 1997 in Lawrence, Kansas, from complications of a heart attack he had suffered the day before. The last thing he wrote the day before he died was, Love, what is it? Most natural painkiller there is. Love. Jack Kerouac continued to write and drink for his whole short life. He was the first big tragedy of the Beats. He never got comfortable with his fame. He was married three times, but the marriages didn't last long. Over the years, his drinking became worse and worse. When a friend asked about his drinking, he said that he was Catholic and therefore wasn't allowed to commit suicide, so he was going to drink himself to death. He was in St. Petersburg, Florida, sitting in his favorite chair drinking whiskey and malt liquor on the morning of October 20th, 1969. Not feeling well, he went into the bathroom where he began to vomit blood. The hospital attempted transfusions and surgery, but it was too late. His liver was just too damaged from years of alcohol abuse. Jack Kerouac was only 47 years old when he died. What started as a few writers trying something new became something that changed the world in many ways, breaking down the restraints that were placed on music, literature, and art. It was reflected in TV and films, becoming a cultural revolution in the 60s and into the punk movement of the 70s. And in some ways, it still reflects our culture today, up to the current artists who feel they can create anything their heart desires, who feel free to question the existing current state of affairs in their work. Lesson 1. Basic Hip Basic to hip is the concept of digging, to dig. Mr. Geetz Romo, how would you define dig? Well, you know, man, like when you dig something. Well, yes. But, but think, uh, baby. It's like, you know, when you dig some chick or some cat. You know, when you pick up on something, you dig it, you dig? To dig, then, would mean to like, to understand, or to appreciate. Dig. It's like... No, it's more like uh, in music, you dig? You know what is a quarter tone? Like you get a note in there between C and C sharp, and that's its own sound, you know? I mean, you can't call it C because it isn't. That's like dig. Dig means dig. Like if you don't dig and you say dig... I dig where you're at. Like I'm the wrong cat, it's the wrong word. Dig? Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. 
this two-part podcast of the Beats and the Beatniks mainly featured men. For the female listeners of this podcast, I do apologize. The thing is, their presence in the beat movement is almost like a secret. Names like Carolyn Cassidy, Diana DePrima, Joyce Johnson, Edie Parker, Joan Vollmer, and others are usually mentioned almost briefly during my research. And at first I was going to write just a paragraph or two at the end of my story about these ladies, but then I changed my mind. That wouldn't be right. I will do a podcast in the future of the Women of the Beat movement because I think it might be an interesting story. I'm not going to do it on the next show or anything like that, but in the future. I think I'm going to have to buy and read a couple of books first. You know, after I did my three-part episode on Aleister Crowley and another one on Ed Wood, I I vowed never to do multi-part shows again. But in this case, I think it worked out. Maybe that's because each show was, well, something a little different. Anyway, how about the ending credits? Have I ever mentioned our Patreon page before? Of course I have. I keep bugging you about it because we could use your help. Why don't you consider being one of the good people by visiting SciCon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. And look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. And speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing podcasts at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page you're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the money, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter or any social media outlet. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something I think that's going to be fun. Coffee with Jeff. Dawn of just new day. Coffee, 
with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.